Uh, but I thought, listen, this, this book is incredible. It really is incredible. And so what I'm going to do is as we work through it, I'll just give a little bit of context every now and then. Every time we hit a certain place that I feel like, listen, I need to uh, give more context just so that you understand what's going on, I'll do that. Uh, instead of giving the historical background and all of that in the beginning, we'll do it as we navigate through the text. Is that okay? Very cool. And so uh, what we'll do, like I always do, is I'll read the text to us. Um, and then I'll pray. I'll pray for myself and I'll pray for you that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning through his very word. And so if you have your Bible, uh, meet me in the book of First Thessalonians. And I believe it'll be up on the screen. It will not be up on the screen. And so I'll, I'll just read it to you. You've got to trust that these are the very words of God. And so hear these words of our Father. Paul Salvinus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, now let me pause here a little bit and unpack who these uh, three gentlemen are. So Paul, uh, many of us would know who Paul is or was. Paul was the apostle. Uh, much of the New Testament was written by him. This dude was a beast. Uh, he's the to live is Christ, to die is gain kind of guy. Uh, every uh, Christian that I've come across looks to him and says, listen, I want to be like Paul. I want to be like Paul. And so I'm not going to go too deep into who he is because he comes up time and time again as we work through the book. Uh, but Salvinus, if you've never heard this name, Salvinus, um, this is Silas. All right, some of you might know the name Silas, right? This is Silas. He was a true friend of Paul, a true friend of Paul. They hung out all the time. They, they planted churches together. In fact, some say that they planted this very church together. These guys were true companions. They were in prison together in Philippi. They hung out together all the time. And then Timothy. Timothy was Paul's disciple. Now, I don't know if you know this, um, but Timothy's mom was a devout Jewish woman and his dad was Greek. So Timothy was mixed race. We know this because Acts chapter 16 verse 1 tells us that. Now I find it incredibly important that the scriptures find it necessary for, for us to know that. That Timothy was mixed race. It's incredibly important. It's got nothing to do with what I'm going to preach about this morning. But I find it incredibly important. And so here's Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Now, Thessalonica uh, still exists today. It's uh, the second largest city in Greece. But in this time, uh, it was the capital of uh, that region called Macedon or Macedonia. This was uh, under the Roman Empire. It was an incredibly strategic city. Very, very important city. And so Paul found it necessary to go plant a church there. He was going, listen, if we want to reach the, the region of Macedonia, then let's, let's go to Thessalonica. Let's plead with God that he would do a profound work in the city so that he might reach this region and beyond. But let me keep reading. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God, and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you 
for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, now let me say this. Paul and Silas planted this church in Thessalonica. Again, we know this uh, because of Acts chapter 17, verse 1 to 9. It actually unpacks the story of them starting the church in that region. And so they plant this church. Uh, people come to faith. It's phenomenal. It starts to grow. It's a really young church. Uh, but then about three weeks in, uh, there's lots of persecution. And so Paul and Silas have to now flee. And so they leave this church under some leadership. They're now in Corinth. And so it's the three of them. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they're now in Corinth. And, and Paul goes, listen, hey, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica and just go make sure that those guys are, are still loving Jesus, that there's still a community there. I want you to get a report for me and just let me know what's going on. How's it going there? And so Timothy goes, uh, sees what they're doing, comes back with a report and says, listen, Paul, it is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. There's tons of persecution. That church is under so much persecution, so much suffering and difficulty and challenges, but they are continuing to love the Lord. They're continuing to love the Lord in spite of all of that. And so Paul says, you know what, then let me write them a letter just to encourage them, just to, to tell them to keep going. As a young church, keep going. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Just that far. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich and that it is still relevant today. That Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church in Thessalonica. But, but Father, may your words encourage us today in 2016, that we ourselves are a young church. We ourselves are facing uh, persecution and, and trials and challenges. It may not be the same, but in some form or shape, we experience that. And so we too need a word of encouragement. And so would you do that through this very word? That as Paul pens these words and he prays for this church, I know he prays for us. And so would you open up our hearts that we might see you ever so clearly? Father, we love you, we praise you, and you show us through your very word our desperate, desperate, desperate need for you. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, so Paul writes this letter as a form of encouragement to them. Like I said, they're going through persecution and trials and challenges, and so he, he writes it, and he starts by praying for them. This is a prayer. It's a very long prayer, but it's a beautiful prayer. He prays for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. But, but there's something that I want us to see this morning. That if we are to receive a word of encouragement from this very book, we've got to pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. Are we a church? This word of encouragement is for the church. And so, so let's pause, let's take a step back and ask and answer, are we a church? 
Do we have the basics of what a church is, the, the fundamentals, the essentials of a church? We've got to ask that question if we are to receive this word of encouragement. And so this morning we're going to see three things, three fundamental things that make up a church, the basics of a church. We're going to see that the gospel comes to a group of people. If the church is a, a group of people, that's why we don't say, listen, guys, we're going to church. We are the church. We go to a gathering, but we are the church. And so if we are a church, uh, the gospel must come to a group of people. The second thing that we'll see is that the gospel works in a group of people. It works in a group of people. And then lastly, the gospel goes out from a group of people. That's what makes a church. Those are the basics of a church. And so the first one, the gospel comes to a group of people. We see this in verse 5. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Every church starts this way. Every church. The gospel must come, and it must come in power of the Holy Spirit, and it must be believed in deep conviction. It must. The gospel must come to a group of people. And we're told here that it, it, it comes with words. It comes with words. The gospel comes with words. Why? Because it's a message. It's a message. It's, it's the good news. Some of us refer to it as that. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. It must come with words. But what is the gospel? Paul, he, he unpacks a little bit of that in verse 9 and 10, where he says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I know you might sit here and go, but that's not the full breath of the gospel. I know. He'll get into that as we work through the book, but he, he unpacks that a little bit. That the gospel must come with words, and, and this is the gospel. It's you turning away from whatever it is that you believe will give you life and turning to Jesus. Trusting in him. Because Jesus is the one that delivers us from the wrath to come. Now I know this word wrath is uh, in our circles uh, probably an uncomfortable word today. In our church circles, people don't want to talk about wrath. They don't want to talk about judgment. We just want to talk about God's love. Because that stuff's uncomfortable. In fact, we want to remove it from our vocabulary. The wrath of God. No, no, God is loving and caring. And he is. But here's the problem. You, you, you can't understand the full breadth and height and, and length of God's love if we don't talk about his wrath. If we don't understand his judgment. Because then my question is then, then what are you being saved from? If you don't want to talk about his wrath and judgment, then what are you being saved from? How can you look to the cross and be like, this is amazing. This is amazing. Jesus' death is amazing. How can you do that if, if you don't understand the gravity of his wrath? And so a, a piece of scripture that I love to go to just to unpack the gospel, and it beautifully explains the wrath of God and then his love, is Ephesians chapter 2. I go to it over and over again. If you've been here for a while, you know that. But I want to do something different this morning. Instead of reading it out of the ESV, that's the, uh, the translation that we preach out of, I'm going to read it out of the message because I think, again, it captures it so beautifully. This is our, our contextualized everyday English. 
Ephesians chapter 2. And understanding the gospel, hear these words. It wasn't so long ago that you were mirrored. Uh, the word mirrored means to be caught up. It wasn't so long ago that you were caught up in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then you exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing. When we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Savior. Now God has us where he wants us with all the time in the world and next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus, saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We do not play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we've done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both making and saving. That is the gospel. And it is incredibly comforting. You should find comfort in these words. I love it. I love how he says, listen, you've got nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing, no amount of work can get you into the kingdom. doesn't matter how good you are, how often you come to the gatherings that we have, how often you read your Bible, how often you pray, and I don't, don't mistake, and those are incredibly important things. But it's not about that. That's not what gets you saved. God does all the work. This should be incredibly comforting to us. Because if this is true, if no amount of good works can get me into the kingdom, if this is true, then that means for those who have crossed the line of faith, there's no amount of bad that you can do that will disqualify you from his grace. Did you get that? If it's true that there's, that there's nothing that I can do to attain salvation, if you are a Christian, then that means that there's nothing that will disqualify you from his grace. He says that once you're in his hand, that's it. You're in. That's the gospel. That's why it's good news. That's why it's good news. It's about his grace. It's always been about his grace. Always. It's always been about his grace. And he initiates it. God initiates it. Maybe let me, let me explain it this way. I'm gonna, I haven't done this in a while. Some of y'all know I like to bring people up. Uh, I'm going to do that this morning, but I'm, so I'm going to need a volunteer. I see Christina's like, no, please don't, don't pick me, don't pick me. No, no, for the sake of this illustration, I'm going to need my wife. Um, is, she, is she at the back? Do you, does someone mind, please go, please go call my wife. I'm going to, because I, because I, I, I believe that this is incredibly important for us to understand. That the gospel is a gospel of grace. That the good news, the good news it's all grace and it's all initiated by him. And that there's nothing that we do, nothing that we do that gets us into the kingdom of God. 
but God alone. I know my wife's panicking. Um, uh, you can stand right there. Yeah. This is going to be great. Like 10 people are going to get saved. It's going to be a phenomenal illustration. <laughs> so, so, so let me, let me explain it this way. So, so this is what, uh, Paul who wrote Ephesians is saying in, in Ephesians chapter 2 when he unpacks the gospel, when he says, listen, I'm incredibly thankful for the church in Thessalonians because of the gospel, right? Uh, that there's nothing that we do. Not, so I'm going to play God. <laughs> if you came to my home, you'd, you'd agree. Um, <laughs> No, just, just playing. I'm gonna play God, and, and so confidence will be, will be you and I, right? And, and so we're, we're on the other side. We're, we're living in sin. We're doing our own thing. We're believing that we're the masters of our own destiny. God stands on this side. He longs for a relationship with us. But there's nothing that we can do to get to Him. And so what does He do? He initiates. He initiates. This is good for our marriage. (laughs) He initiates. And then what does he do when he gets here? He embraces us with grace. This is is very good for our marriage. He he embraces us with grace. Luke Luke 15, the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. What are we told? The father sees the son at a distance. And then he runs, he initiates, he runs, and then he embraces him <laughs> with grace. This is us. And so many of us will stand him, and as, as he's embracing us, we'll be like, okay, listen, this is what I promise I'll never do. And I said, no. No. It's about his grace and his grace alone, and so he embraces us. But now, don't confuse his embrace for him endorsing our lifestyles. There's a massive difference. His embrace doesn't mean that he endorses what we will continue to do, the sin that we will continue to do. That's not what it means. That's not what it means. But rather, he's wanting, he's wanting us to become more and more like him. And so he's gonna take us out from where we are. To where we need to be and sometimes it'll be great So he, he, he will never leave us where we are. Not only does he embrace us, but then he's drawing us to become more and more like him. And like you've just seen, often we'll enjoy it. We'll enjoy it because it's like, I don't want to live like that. The parable of the prodigal son, I don't want to live among the pigs. And so I'll enjoy it as he draws me closer and closer and closer to the Father. But there are times, there are times, go back. There are times where it's not as fun. 
That's not as fun. There are times where you have no idea what he's doing. And so in your mind, you'll be like, I don't, I don't know this commandment. I don't know this passage. Like, how am I supposed to respond? Sometimes your heart is like, ah, oh, I'm enjoying. I mean, but then, but then all of a sudden you'll go. And, and so all of a sudden you'll be like, I think I, I think I know that track. I think I know. And, and, and then you'll come. And then you'll be like, what, what, what's this? What's this? I don't know you. But, but he'll teach you. He'll teach you. He'll teach you. You're like, oh, okay, just follow. Just follow. Just follow. Okay. Okay. Is that how, is that how we love people? Is that how we serve? Is that how... Thank you. She, she whispers in my ear, I'm never doing that again. Shame. She, she didn't know I was going to do that. But, but you get the point. The gospel of grace, it finds you where you are. He then embraces you. But his promise is, I'm not going to leave you there. I want you to become more and more like me. And yes, there are times where it's great, especially in the beginning. Especially in the beginning, if you've just come to Christ, if you've just crossed the line of faith, and I know there's many of you in here like that. It's like, man, this is great, and I love this. I love community. I just I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait for my city group. But after a while, you're kind of like, oh, Jesus, I don't know that move. Sometimes, if we're really honest, Jesus, I don't want to know that move. And he says, it's okay, I'll, I'll show you. I'll show you how to love and how to serve and how to trust. It's about his grace. It's always about his grace. And so, and so if we are the church, if we're trying to figure out if we can receive this word of encouragement, we have to ask the question, are we the church? And if we are, then the gospel has to come to us through words. There is no church if there's no proclaimed gospel. Some of us, we tend to think people will believe by just looking at me. At work. I'm just going to show up to work and sit here. I'm going to say nothing. And then they'll just come and be like, hey man, I saw you sitting there. I want to give my life to Jesus. Now, if, if that has happened to you, man, praise God, because I know God can do that. But when I read the scriptures, I see over and over again the proclamation of the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel. But the gospel doesn't just come with words. It must come with power. Again, verse 5, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. This gospel is not just information. It's not just information, but it's good news that leads to supernatural transformation. That's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a major role in the work of salvation. See, for many of us, the, the Holy Spirit is like a silent partner. Every now and then you'll see his signature on Scripture. But that's about it. Like, he doesn't really do anything. Often we don't even, we don't even refer to him as a him. And then for others, the Holy Spirit is, is, is that dude that shows up and does really cool party tricks. 
I know you've seen the YouTube clips. But that, that, that's not what we see in Scripture. The Holy Spirit comes with power. And he has a role to play, an incredibly important role to play. The Holy Spirit provides conviction of sin to all people. John 16, verse 8. He serves as the helper or comforter for all of those who are in Christ. John 14, 16 to 17. The Holy Spirit guides believers to truth. John 16, verse 13. The Holy Spirit helps believers to glorify God. On our own, we would not glorify God. Left to myself, I will choose me over and over again. The Holy Spirit helps believers glorify God, John 16, verse 14. He enables believers to produce the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, to 23. The Holy Spirit indwells in all believers. He seals us, assuring our salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. This is massive. The gospel not only comes with words, but it comes with power. This is incredibly important. And Paul, Paul mentions this because he knows the situations in Thessalonica. He knows that they would have needed this gospel power. They would have needed this gospel power because he knew what they were up against. Verse 9, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He knew what they were up against. You see, in, in that context, a lot of the people were, were kind of connected to what these things that they call guilds. It's like a network of trade. Like if you were a, a blacksmith and you were part of the blacksmith guild. If you were into farming, you were part of the farming guild. It was like your network. And you know what they did? They would go work and then afterwards they'd gather together at the local pub, that version of a pub. They would gather together and then make sacrifices to their multiple gods. And often these sacrifices would lead to, to unbiblical sexual acts. This was all part of their worship. And so uh, for the, the Christians in that city, when they came to faith, they had to go, you know what, we need to turn away from this and turn to the living God. And often that had a huge impact on their livelihood. Because now it was like, listen, hey, if you're not, if you're not sacrificing to this idol, then you're not going to get that tender. You're not going to get that opportunity. And so there's this pressure now. It's like, so what do I do? Do I, do I trust God or, or, or do I kind of give in and compromise so that I can put food on the table? Paul knew that they needed gospel power because it's hard. We need gospel power. How often do you sit there and go, you know, I know, I know, man, economically these are tough times. And so maybe if I don't, if I don't fill out my tax return that way and just get a little bit more, it's going to help me. Or I'll give to the church. I'll give to the church. We justify it. It's, it's a sin. It's wrong. And so we need gospel power to go, listen, you can't do that. That's not how you live anymore. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Trust him. The gospel must come to a group of people if they are to call themselves the church. The second thing, and it'll be a lot quicker, these next two will be a lot quicker. The, the, the gospel must work in a group of people. 
If we were to call ourselves the church, the gospel must work in us. Verse 4, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's about to get crazy now. He has chosen you. We're now entering the doctrine of election. We're about to talk about predestination. And there's always two groups of people when you talk about this, this doctrine of election. There's always those who kind of go, you know what, man, I, I don't, I don't, it's just really difficult for me to understand. I, just, I don't want to know. I'm not going to believe it. I don't know. I don't know where I am. And then the other group is trying to shove it down our throats. Believe this. And then we get into these heated debates with one another. Are you predestined? Are you predestined? Who's predestined? Do I share the gospel? I don't know. Election. Ah. But if you look at the scriptures, every time Paul talks about the doctrine of election, it's always meant to comfort us. Always. Go look for yourself. It is always meant to comfort us. So, Anya, are you saying you believe in election? Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Do I understand it? No. I don't. Because I'm not God. But I believe in it because when I look at the scriptures, it is meant to encourage us. It's meant to comfort us. Paul always says it because he realizes, listen, this church is going through some difficult times. There's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, sin is knocking at the door going, listen, you see, you sinned yesterday. You see, you see you're see, not a Christian. God doesn't love you because you did this. The doctrine of election allows us to stand in the face of sin and go, no. Yes, I have sinned. Look at my past. But he's chosen me. He's predestined me. Before the foundation of the world, he chose me. He took the risk. God took the risk because he, he knew. If you were in investments, you'd be like, that's, that's a ridiculous risk to take. Because you know that's what he's going to do. But I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose him. It's meant to encourage us. And so if you wonder today, do I matter? Am I loved? Does anybody care about me or my struggles? Am I somebody of value? Start here. Start where Paul does. He says, before you were born, before you had made a mess of your life, before any of that happened, God chose you. Not the other way around. Knowing that all that you were going to do was going to happen. He chose you. Knowing that there was that risk, he said anyway, I love you. And I'll take that one. And that's what Paul does to encourage these believers. That's how we're to understand the doctrine of election. It's meant to be words of encouragement and unbelievable comfort to us in our times of doubt and difficulty. And so stop these debates of, of going, um, uh, do I share the gospel with that person because I don't know if they're predestined or if they, I don't know, I don't know if they're elected. I, you know what you do when you do that? You try to sit in the seat of God. God doesn't have to share his playbook with you. He doesn't. By grace, he does. He, he, he gives it to us. But he doesn't have to share everything with us. 
And so sometimes we, we get so frustrated because we're like, oh, the idol of clarity instead of the certainty of Christ. I hope that the doctrine of election would comfort us and that we would go out and share the gospel. And I'm getting ahead of myself in the sermon, but that we would go out and share the gospel. Why? Because I want other people to have the certainty. Why share the gospel if you don't know? Because I don't know. I don't know if they'll come to Christ, so I'm going to keep sharing the gospel. And if they say no, oh, I'll be back tomorrow. Trusting that his work of grace will draw them closer to himself. And so usually when I unpack that, this doctrine of election, the following question is always, so how do I know I'm chosen? Right, like I'm not supposed to like try to figure out if they're chosen or not. With them I share the gospel. But, but how do I know if I'm chosen? Paul unpacks this in the letter. He unpacks it with, with why he's thankful for them. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul unpacks the three great Christian virtues. The three great Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. And he says, I see them. They are evident in your lives. They are evident in your lives. Do you want to know if you're chosen? Do you want to know if you're elect? These virtues are evident in your lives. But I want you to see here that Paul not only stresses these virtues alone, but he also stresses what they produce. He stresses what they produce. First, he says, the faith, the faith produces work. It produces actions. It produces deeds. Because at the heart of faith, there's work. Why is there work? It's because you're trusting. You're trusting Jesus. And so it will produce work. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. We don't work so that we acquire faith. We work because we have faith. And so we'll plant a church in faith. We'll work in faith. We'll show up. Many will show up here early on a Sunday in faith. Many will gather in small communities during the week in faith. We don't, we don't know what God is going to do, but we'll trust Him. And so Paul says, I see, I see the faith. How do I see it? Because you guys are at work. You're trusting. You're believing. He says he sees their love, the labor of their love. See, there are two different uh, Greek words for the, work, for the word work or labor. The one is ergon, which is used to describe faith. And the other one is kopos. See, ergon is pleasant and stimulating. It's when you enjoy work, when it's fun and great. He uses that word to describe their faith. But then kopos implies toil. It's vigorous and sweat-producing. It's tough. Now, why does he use that to talk about love? Well, if you've been married for a season, you'll just amen him at that point. See, for some of you who are recently married, you're still in that honeymoon stage, and, and praise God for it. I pray that he just extends it. 
But after a while, you, you just kind of go, you know what? Not today. Not today, boo-boo, not today. You wake up and you're just like, that thing that you do is frustrating me. It's frustrating me. I just, I don't know if, I don't know if I want to keep going. And this is what separates those who are in Christ and those who aren't with regards to marriage. Because you know what the world does? It just goes, you know what? I'm out. I'm not feeling it anymore. Those feelings that I had on that day. Remember that day? Friends and family and I was dressed in all white. I'm not feeling that today. And so you know what? That, that means that I'm out. I don't love you anymore. That's not how it works. Love is a commitment. And so there will be days where it is tough. Now I know some of you in here maybe come from a context where there has been divorce and I, I don't want to belittle that and I don't want to just talk over it. But what I want to say is that, listen, loving people is difficult. Just being in this community, if you've been here for a while and really stepped in, loving someone who's different from you, who practices life differently, who believes differently. It's going to take work. Sweat producing work. And so Paul says, I see that. I see that. I see that in the church. Brothers and sisters, I see that. I see that you guys are seeking to love one another and then you're seeking to love the city. And it's hard because sometimes those who are not a part of this community are going to do everything that they can to hurt you. To undermine you over and over again. How do we respond? What did Jesus say? Love your enemies. I'm pretty sure that love is not like a, yay, unicorn, my, my enemy. But it's showing up and going, you know what? Let me turn the other cheek. It's a love that glorifies the Father. And let's be honest, it's a love that draws people in. Because they'll look at this community and go, how do you guys do that? Like we set up legislation and constitution and laws hoping that, that, that it'll produce this kind of love. It's like, no, it doesn't. And if it does, it's temporary. It's a gospel love. It's a gospel love that you need. And so he says, listen, I see that. It's evident. I see it. And then he talks about their hope. The hope that he sees. Steadfastness of hope. I love that word, steadfastness, because it's, it's, it's a word that's just, it's got so much in it. It talks about patience and endurance and perseverance. He says, you, you guys have this kind of hope that goes, you know what, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. Bring the heat. Bring the challenge. Bring the persecution. I'm not moving. Why? Because my hope is anchored in Jesus. My hope is anchored in Jesus and his return. He's coming back. He hasn't left us. He's coming back. And so my hope is anchored in him. Again, if you feel that the Lord is leading you to pack up and leave, and then, man, I'll be the first person to pray for you and encourage you. And, and if it's of God, then by all means... But for us, some of us who are going to stay, economy is crumbling, wondering what's happening in government and politics, poverty, racism. 
will be patient. Rooted will endure. It will persevere. Because our hope is anchored in Jesus. And we await his return. We await his return. Work of faith. Labor of love. Steadfastness of hope. Paul says, I see these things. I see that the gospel is at work in you. I see these things. Now, now, Paul wasn't saying, hey, I'm thankful that you guys are producing these things perfectly. Because that's what produces a church. No. What he's saying is, I, I see growth in these things. Because this side of heaven will never be perfect. Will never be perfect. But there should be growth. And so here's my question to you. If you've crossed the line of faith, do you see growth in these things? Is there growth in the way that you love? Is there growth in your faith? Is there growth in your hope? Or are you exactly the same? Do you look exactly the same? as you did on the day that you came to Christ. Because that then takes us to the first question, has the gospel really come? Has the gospel really come? And I want us to ask that question, not only individually, as we work through the series, I want us to ask, answer these questions as a group of people, as the church. Do we look exactly the same as we did when we first started? Or are we growing and loving one another? Serving one another. Is our faith growing? The last one. And we'll land the plane here. When asking the question, are we a church? We've got to ask an answer. Has the gospel come to us? Is the gospel working in us? And then lastly, the gospel, it goes out from a group of people. The gospel goes out from a group of people. The message of the good news cannot end with the church. It must go beyond us. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. How unbelievably encouraging as a young church to hear that. Paul, who's this phenomenal missionary, says, you know what, guys? You guys are killing it. You're killing it. You're loving Jesus and you're loving one another so much and you're sharing the gospel with others that it's like, man, I, I don't even need to go to those places. I don't even need to go because, because what you guys are doing is, is spreading like wildfire. People are asking, who, who, who are these people? These Jews and Gentiles. Who are these people that are coming together and worshiping together? I, I want to be a part of that. I want to be loved that way. I want to be served that way. How, how do I become a part of this community? And our answer is the same. Trust in Jesus. Turn from these idols and trust in Jesus. The gospel must go out from a group of people. 
I think of Harriet Tubman. I don't know how many of you know the late and great Harriet Tubman. Um, see, Harriet Tubman became famous because she was known as the conductor of the Underground Railway Road during the 1850s. She was born a slave on Maryland's eastern shore. She endured the harsh existence of slavery, the beatings, the floggings. But in 1849, she fled from slavery, leaving her husband and family behind in order to escape all of this. And despite a bounty on her head, she returned to the South at least 19 times to lead her family and hundreds of other slaves to freedom via what they call the Underground Railway Road. That's Harriet Tubman. Born a slave and then flees. She now becomes a free woman. She doesn't just chill in her freedom. She goes, hold on, there's a whole lot more people that are still slaves. I'm going back. I'm going back. My people must go free, was her constant chorus, signifying a determination uncommon among even the most militant slaves. She used her intelligence and drawing on her infinite courage. She escaped bounty hunters seeking a reward for her capture. She never lost a fugitive or allowed one to turn back. I love that. She never lost a fugitive or allowed one to turn back. This was a woman who said, you know what? I have tasted freedom. The temptation is to go, I'm just going to live in this freedom and forget about all these other people who are still slaves. But she doesn't. She doesn't give in to that. She goes, you know what? I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back. I'm going to risk it all. I'm going to go back. Why? So that others might taste freedom. We cannot be a church that claims to love Jesus and not love his mission. We heard Joey talk about this last week. You can't stand over here and go, I'm all about you, Jesus. And then over here go, "Mm, but I I really don't care too much about your mission. I don't care that you are, are drawing people to yourself through the proclamation of the gospel. You cannot be a church. You've got to go back. If if you're failing here, you've got to go back to the first one and ask, has the gospel really come? If we're going to receive this word of encouragement, we have to ask these questions. Are we a church? Are we a church that is worthy to hear these words of encouragement? Harriet Tubman said, I freed freed thousands of slaves, and I could have freed thousands more if they had known they were slaves. I think that's the biggest issue is that people don't know that they are slaves to sin. I didn't know that for 19 years of my life. I didn't know that I was living in darkness. My eyes had adjusted to the dark. That's how bad things were. And it's only when I saw a community of faith, a community of faith, living out the gospel, I I looked and I said, they have something that I don't have. They have something I long for. Is that us? Are we that community that people look to? That when people come and visit and they walk in and they go, 
this is different. And not so much because, oh, cool, we get to write on our coffee tables with chalk. That's pretty cool. And, man, we have these really cool banners. Uh, I think they're pretty cool. And, uh, man, we have a massive screen and our artwork is on point. And, yeah, that stuff's important. But, no, I hope that they would come in and go, this is different. Because they're going, look how they relate to one another. And engage with one another. And love one another. And serve one another. What is that? It's the gospel. It's the gospel that has come to a group of people. It's the gospel that works in a group of people. And it's the gospel that will go out from a group of people. Are we being known for that? Are we being known for that? And so I'll close with this. As we work through this book, over these next eight, nine, ten weeks, as we receive this word of encouragement from Paul, we should constantly pause and ask ourselves, are we truly the church? Are we just pretending or are we truly the church? And so we should ask ourselves these three questions. Has the gospel come to us? And again, I think it's important to ask this question individually, but let's ask it as a community. Has the gospel come to us? Is the gospel working in us? Is there a change? Is there evidence of grace? And then lastly, is the gospel going out from us? Are we creating holy huddles? Or are we channels of God's grace to a broken world? Let's pray. And so, Father, as, as we begin, as we launch, as we kick off this new series, um, I ask just for two things. And my hope is that I would continually come back to these two things over and over and over again. The one is, are our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith? In times where we may not see what it is you're doing in front of us, I hope that we would trust your hand. That we would cry out to you in our times of need. Because we've made a declaration that there's nothing else that will satisfy us. Only you. And so I ask that you would examine our hearts over and over again. That, that, that we want to receive a word of encouragement as the body of Christ. As the church. But, but we cannot be the church if our eyes are not fixed on you. If we have not made a decision to follow you. And so search our hearts, O oh Lord. And then the second piece is that as we do that, we would do that collectively. That our society is prone to independence. That our questions are always, uh, how does that impact me? How does that affect me? What about me? I hope that over these next eight, nine, ten weeks, we would go, no, no, how does that impact us? How does that affect us? What about us? Because you have beautifully and uniquely designed us for community. And so, Lord, I thank you for this prayer that Paul prays for the church in Thessalonica. And I know by the power of your spirit that this prayer is for every single church throughout history. Father, we love you. We praise you. 
in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.